So now turn to uh, the summary of the scripture that we have in the Heidelberg Catechism. And we turn to Lord's Day 13. Let's hear the word of the Lord from Lord's Day 13. Why is he called God's only begotten Son, since we also are children of God? Because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. We, however, are children of God by adoption, through grace, for Christ's sake. Why do you call him our Lord? Because he has ransomed us, body and soul, from all our sins, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood, and has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. Beloved in the Lord, as we go through in the catechism the names and the titles of Christ, it's wonderful to see how in every name and every title, it's not only about who Christ is, it describes who Christ is, but it's also about what he's doing for us. You see, when we receive Christ, it's not just a part of Christ that is promised or some particular aspect of who he is. We receive the whole Christ, as Paul puts those words that Adam says of Eve into the mouth of Christ, you are now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In receiving the whole Christ, every aspect of who he is and what he has done is meaningful to the Christian in his or her life before God. If Christ is the Son of God, I too am privileged to share in that sonship. The Catechism draws the necessary distinction, not as a natural son, but as a naturalized son. If Christ is Lord, then I am privileged to be his possession. And as his treasured possession, I know that my Lord has power over all things, and I have no need to boast in men. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. You are Christ's, and Christ is God's. I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme, live as blood-bought sons of God in Christ. Live as blood-bought sons of God in Christ, who is the only begotten Son of God. And live as blood-bought sons of God in Christ, who is our Lord. Our Lord is named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Our Lord is given the title Christ because he is anointed and chosen by God to do this task. But there's another title he has that brings out the significance of his divinity. He is the Son of God. The Son in the Old Testament, or in the Bible in general, often signifies a representation of the Father into the world. We can think of the parable of the landowner in Matthew. 
The landowner sends out his servants to see how the gardener is doing. They are persecuted and killed. Finally, he sends his son, who is all the more representative of the father, assuming that they will take him more seriously because he is a much fuller reflection of the father. Of course, if we remember the story, the, land, the, the servants kill the son as well, and then the father comes in judgment on those sermons. Servants. In a similar way, the son of the king was often vice regent to the father. This was the common practice in Israel and the surrounding natures. The son then often projected of the, the glory of the father to the nations around, especially in the battlefield. When the father was too old to fight, the son had the strength of youth and ideally used that strength as a faithful son to build up the kingdom of his father. And even today we can see that logic, even though we tend to view sons more independently of their fathers than we would have in the past, we do see reflections between sons and fathers. We will still even talk about sometimes how sons bear the good name of their fathers. But the Son of God is not only uniquely a son of the Father, as the Catechism says, he is also has a unique relationship with the Father of which the relationship between father and son on earth is only an imitation or reflection of. We are told in the scriptures that he, Jesus, is the exact image of the father, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. He, Jesus, uniquely reveals the father and is uniquely positioned to because the fullness of God dwells in him. The Son of God is fully God, even as the Father is God. We see the mystery of the Trinity. Christ is fully God, even as he is a distinct person. The sonship of Christ also reflected, is also reflected typologically through the relationships that God has with men in salvation history. Adam is a type of son. David is a type of son. Israel is a type of son. However, the Catechism rightly notes that only Christ is uniquely the natural son of God. And this unique relationship is something the church fathers called eternal generation. The son of God's relationship with the father is eternally reflected in fatherhood and sonship so that the son is generated from the father not as less than the Father, but as from the Father. The distinction between the persons is found in their relationship, while each person remains fully God and is worthy of all glory and honor and praise that God is due. Colossians calls Christ the firstborn of creation, not in the sense that he's the first created thing, but that he is the one through whom all things are made. It's another way of saying he's the word. He's the one through whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And all those things just describe the wonderful mystery that God, the Son of God, became flesh. Because he's the firstborn of all creation, he willingly stepped into the line of David, adding to himself a truly human body. 
he was able to show in himself and his work the image of the invisible God. You see, and this is the big point here, the other sons of salvation history failed. Adam failed to keep God's commands in the garden. Israel failed to follow God when she was planted in the land. David did not keep God's commandments, and neither did his children, until Jesus Christ was born as the only sinless man. As the only sinless man, God gave Christ the privilege of being the firstborn of the dead, so that we too may also be connected to the life of God. See, you see, not only are we not natural sons of God in the sense that Christ is, but we are also separated from God through the sin of Adam. We are under death, barred from the tree of life. If you remember the story in Genesis 3, they're removed from the garden, barred from the tree of life. They can't participate in the life of God. Unless God does something. And so the catechism adds, as we've just been talking about, Christ is the eternal natural son of God. Catechism adds, we, however, are children of God by adoption through grace, through grace for Christ's sake. That's, that's why the Colossians calls the work of Christ as the son of God in the flesh a reconciliation. We need to be reconciled to God and Christ's work through his death, through his resurrection as the firstborn of the dead has reconciled us to God. That reconciliation is the, is the adoption, or adoption is at least part of that reconciliation that the catechism is speaking of. We are reconciled. It's a finished work. In that sense, too, adoption is a one-time thing. Once the papers are signed, the child is legally under the protection of parents who are not biologically related to him. This is the same as the reconciliation that Colossians speak of. Our Lord in his body of flesh was put to death. That means, if you believe in him, all your evil deeds die with Christ. The promise of baptism is that your sins from the beginning of your life to the end of your life all may be put on the cross of Christ. Our Lord in his body of flesh was put to death. You who were alienated and doing evil deeds have received that death of, as your own because in his death your sins die. You are no longer under death. You're no longer separated from God. But with your sins gone in the death of Christ, you may approach God as a son. How do you live as a son? We have the words of Colossians 1.23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You are reconciled, finished. Live as one reconciled by continuing in faith. 
Reconciliation as a whole concept is a, is a big word. It's something that's finished in Christ. It's also something that begins in Him. You are reconciled so that you may grow closer and closer to God. Again, there's a parallel here in the idea of adoption. You become a son of God that is legal, completely finished. Now, as a son of God, you begin to look more and more like your father. 1 John 3, 2 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. God is working in us a greater and greater likeness to our Heavenly Father. And just as Christ presented the Father to the world, so we present Christ to the world, and in Christ the Father as well. We become symbols of reconciliation to the Father, adopted sons that wear the face of our Father, not literally, but by loving the things He loves, righteousness, holiness, and excellence. And there's more. And as children, we also have an inheritance. That inheritance is described in Colossians 1, 12 to 14. Paul is there giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. <coughs> he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Our inheritance is the kingdom of God in the Son. Our inheritance is eternal life. Our inheritance is ruling and reigning with Christ Jesus. The reason we are able to be sons of God, reconciled to our Father, is first of all because Jesus Christ has made us his possession as our Lord. And that brings us to our second point. Live as blood-bought sons of Christ, who is our Lord. Christ, our Lord, Christ is our Lord because he ransomed us. We were slaves of sin. We were slaves of sin by our own choice. And under death, in death, we could not but continue to sin. The primary picture of redemption in the Old Testament is the rescue of Israel from the land of Egypt. Israel was enslaved by Pharaoh. And the Lord stretched out his arm through Moses and brought Egypt to its knees so that Israel could be freed. It's a wonderful picture, depiction of our redemption, freed from sin. It's also a warning, because Israel is shown to have a double mind about her slavery under Pharaoh. She groans under it, but when she is freed, she's always looking back to her slavery as something good, something better. Isn't it the same with our sin? When we're under it, we groan. We want to do what is good. But when we are rescued, we too often look back with fond desire upon it. But the glory here is that God has redeemed us from sin. The words of Romans 6-7, we are freed from the power of sin. So we know that even though sin still has its effect on our lives, we no longer have to sin. There's nobody compelling us to sin because we've been freed through the cross of Jesus Christ. 
we are able to do what is truly good in Jesus Christ. Isn't that a wonderful truth, brothers and sisters? When you have that lustful urge or that desire to tear down your brother unjustly, you can stand firm in the knowledge that you are free. Free from sin. And God didn't do that with silver and gold. He did that with something far more valuable. He did it with the precious blood of Christ. If we want to talk about the power of the gospel, this is the power. Christ poured out his precious blood. Remember that common phrase from the Old Testament, the life is in the blood. So Christ poured out his life for us so that we may have life in him. That does more than just pay for the judgment of God. It also gives us the right to share in his life, which is part and parcel of the inheritance we have in him. Because he was raised from the dead and as our, res- and, and, and as our resurrected Lord, we are, in fact, able to share in that life. The Catechism continues, He has freed us from all the power of the devil. By disobeying God, man not only became subject to sin and death, but he became subject to the devil. Because he heard the voice of the devil rather than the voice of God, he subjected himself to the devil. It's an interesting an interesting little note about the word for the devil's deception of Eve in Genesis 3. It's the same word as to become indebted to. And so man became subject, indebted to the devil. Man served the devil. In the Old Testament, God sets up the promised land as a place where that should be free or that should be free from the dominion of the devil. Of course, too often the uh, Israelites are, are too willing to invite the devil back in. In the terms of the New Testament, we are, as Colossians 1 says, delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son. That's not a literal transfer as Israel was delivered from the house of slavery to the promised land. Rather, it's a transfer of possession. We are made the special possession of Jesus. Again from Romans 6. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you, of whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. It goes right back to Lord's Day 1. You belong to Jesus Christ, body and soul. How do you live as a blood-bought son? For one, as Romans 6 notes, if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, there will already be a natural growth of obedience that is proper to Christians because you no longer belong to darkness and sin, but you belong to Jesus. 
As a blood-bought son, you seek to fulfill righteousness through Jesus. As a blood-bought son, you seek to be holy as God is holy. And as a blood-bought son, you do not need to be afraid that anything will take you away from the love of God. However, it's easy for Christians to lie to themselves. The, uh, the New Testament epistles bear witness to that. And the devil is eager to exploit that. So Christians are warned time and time again, you belong to Jesus. In Corinth, there are, they, there are Christians that argue that the soul is what matters, but the body not so much. And so they're free to experience sexual immorality. Paul warns that God bought you with a price. In Romans, there may have been people out there who argued that we may sin all the more, that grace may abound. Paul says, you have died to sin in Christ, now live to righteousness in his resurrection. Yet do we still not have the precious blood of Jesus? So that even as we do what we do not want to do, we continue to approach God for the sake of the precious blood of Jesus. Again, your baptism is a promise that you can continually come to God and receive washing through the Lord Jesus Christ. He has bought you. And think of the precious thing with which he bought you, his precious blood. He's not even going to let you, he's, he's not even going to let you give up on him because he's not going to give up on you. Nothing can separate us from his love. And that should be our encouragement as we go out into the world as well. Our, our transfer to the kingdom of the Son uh, is a promise that is characterized this way in Ephesians 2, verse 6. God raised us up with him, Jesus, and seated us within the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Christ has been raised, and Ephesians 2 is saying, in a sense, you're already raised with Jesus. You're already seated in the, in the, in the sitting down of Christ, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In principle, we're already with him. We are citizens of heaven even as we still labor in the sinful flesh here on earth and are subject to the suffering of the flesh. But we know in this that we have an inheritance in him. And that's what gives us the boldness to continue to serve Christ in all things, especially as the world around us grows more and more negative toward Christianity by his strength and his promises, by his spirit, we are able to continue to exercise all righteousness and confess the gospel in an increasingly wicked world. Christ is a saving Lord. That truth is at the center of our faith. All things are yours in Christ Jesus. That is how we can know for certain that after we have suffered for a little while, I believe that's the, at the end of our profession of faith form, the charge, after you have suffered for a little while, you will be exalted in him. If we endure in him, we will also reign with him. 
All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand to sing. Uh, Psalm 148, 1, 2, 3, and 4.